Welcome to Literary Quest, a podcast hosted by us, Vicki and Marissa, where we discuss our favorite and fantasy fiction and hopefully can direct you in your quest to find your next great read. Hello, welcome to this week's episode of Literary Quest. This week we are discussing The Book of Life by Deborah Harkness. This is the last book in the All Souls trilogy. I will introduce our locations and characters, and then Vicki will pick up with our plot. So in this book, we revisit several locations that we've been to before. We go to Madison and upstate New York, where Sarah lives. We go to London. We go back to France to Septor. Uh, new places that we go are going to be New Haven, Connecticut, specifically the Yale University campus. That is where Diana is a tenured professor at and where her best friend Chris works. And then we also go to Helm, Poland in search of one of our main character or one of the, the villains in our story. So our new characters, we have Phoebe Taylor, who was really briefly introdu- introduced in the last book, Shadow of Night, and becomes a a larger player in this book. So Phoebe is a human. She works at Sotheby's auction house where she uh, met Marcus in the shadow of night. Um, She and Marcus are mated to each other and are also engaged. And she plans to become a vampire. Phoebe is the daughter of a diplomat. She's super observant and proper and is a good mediator. She's good at diffusing situations as well. We have Chris Roberts, who is one of Diana's best friends. He is a molecular biologist for Yale University, where he runs a lab in the chemistry department. He is a brilliant scientist. He's very practical and believes that science is meant to be shared. We meet TJ Weston, who is a demon. He appeared in the first book. A discovery of witches as one of the early demons who Diana met in the Bodleian Library, and he reappears in this book, and we actually find out. So he was unnamed in the in the first book, and we actually find out who he is in this book. So he he comes back. We meet Fernando Gonsalves, who is a vampire. His mate was Hugh de Clermont, who was Matthew's brother, who was killed by the King of France. Fernando has a reputation as a formidable warrior, and he serves as a knight of Lazarus. We meet Varen de Clermont, who is also a vampire. She is the daughter of Philippe de Clermont and is Matthew's sister, and she is known for keeping her promises. She lives in Berlin with her husband, Ernst Newman, who is a human. He married Varen when he was in his 20s, and he's now in his 60s. We meet Jack Blackfriars. So Jack appeared in the last book, Shadow of Night, as a child. He's He was the child that Diana and Matthew adopted in London at the Blackfriars. And he returns in this story as an adult. So Jack is a vampire now. He was sired by Father Hubbard after he contracted the plague in his early 20s. He has also contracted the blood rage that plagues Matthew and some of the members of his line, and Benjamin, who manipulated him 
into using the blood rage to kill people. And then that brings us to Benjamin Fuchs. So Benjamin is also a vampire and he's Matthew's son. Matthew made Benjamin a vampire in the 12th century as a punishment for seeking to betray the de Clermonts and reveal that creatures existed. And then Matthew abandoned him after making him a vampire to fend for himself. And so because of that, he is seeking retribution against the de Clermonts. Benjamin inherited Matthew's blood rage and seeks to use it as a weapon. He is unspeakably cruel, and we find out that he actually sired Father Hubbard. Vicki, do you want to take up our plot? Sure. Okay, so we begin the Book of Life with Matthew and Diana's return to Septor. Their happiness at seeing their family again is ruined when they hear about Emily's death at the hands of Peter Knox. While Diana sleeps, Matthew catches up with everyone. Hamish tells him that Marcus has done an excellent job as Grandmaster. He has recruited new members, demanded Knox's punishment for his part in Emily's death, and requested that the covenant be revoked. When he meets with Fernando, Matthew confesses that his blood rage is worse and tells him that he is worried what will happen to his blood rage when Diana resumes her normal life. He knows it is time to tell the rest of his family about the blood rage. Baldwin, of course, shows up and tells Matthew and Diana all sorts of bad news. He refuses to acknowledge Diana as a de Clermont. The congregation rejected Marcus's second attempt to revoke the covenant. The congregation wants to dismantle the Knights of Lazarus. The congregation will be coming to inspect Septor. And that Isabeau will be held hostage by Jaber as insurance. Isabeau is relatively unconcerned about this but just request that Martha is sent with her. Marcus begins looking for a way out of their predicament and finds that forming a scion would solve all their problems. If Matthew formed a scion, it would be a distinct branch of the de Clermont family. Matthew would be the scion sire and can exercise his will and power freely. Additionally, during his research, Marcus stumbles upon evidence of Benjamin and Matthew is forced to explain blood rage. Unsurprisingly, Benjamin becomes a problem. He contacts Matthew and tells him that he is aware of Matthew's genetic research, the Book of Life, and he declares that he has found a way to destroy the Claremonts. Matthew must find Benjamin and kill him, but they first take Diana and Sarah back to Madison, New York. One night, Diana uses her magic and her weaver cords become part of her fingers, like tattoos. She tells Sarah that she is a weaver, and she tells her everything that's happened in night in 1590. Diana and Sarah grow closer as Sarah helps her figure out some of her magic, and this also helps Sarah with her grieving. While they are experimenting, they discover that Diana can kill spells, and Sarah informs Diana that Rebecca was very good at higher magics. One day, while Diana, Sarah, and Matthew are walking, they come to a crossroads. Diana feels dark power coming from there and is drawn to it. She reveals to Matthew that she made a bargain with the goddess in order to save his life and that the cost of it would be her life. Matthew is furious and demands that Diana call the goddess, but she refuses and tells him that she does not regret, regret it. Their fight dissipates when Diana feels the twins move and they return to the house to find a present from the house, which turns out to be her mother's spell book that she used for higher magic. While in Madison, she also runs into her friend Chris, who is shocked to learn that she is married and pregnant. He is also hurt and angry that Diana hasn't been in contact with him for almost a year. She decides to tell him about witches, vampires, and demons. He takes the news well, 
And that evening, Matthew receives a call from Miriam, who is distraught, and she gives him a web address. It shows a witch who is huddled up and Benjamin comes into frame. He reveals that he and his sons have been raping the witch in order to get her pregnant. She has gotten pregnant a few times, but has repeatedly miscarried. He threatens to kill the witch he has now and replace her with Diana. This obviously infuriates Matthew and scares Diana, but Fernando and Miriam remind them that they need to think through this calmly, as rushing in will not help. Chris, who is also protective of Diana, is quick to attack Matthew, both physically and verbally. Matthew doesn't take that well and puts him in his place. Chris manages to convince Matthew to let him help by using his laboratory and research assistants at Yale. With reluctance, Matthew agrees, and Matthew, Diana, and Chris head off to Yale, where Miriam and Galaglass will meet them. At Yale, Chris has his research team sign NDAs and explains the situation to them. They will be studying chromosome 24, the chromosome that distinguishes creatures from humans. While some are surprised, other in Chris's, teams, in Chris's team are creatures, and they are all excited to work on the project. Additionally, Diana presents them with a page from Ashmole 782 and requests that they run DNA testing on it as well. While the scientists work on their projects, Diana begins a search for the rest of the missing Ashmole 782 pages. Several weeks go by with minimal development both in the lab and in the library, but Diana's pregnancy continues to go well. She receives a shock, however, when an adult and vampiric Jack arrives. She is thrilled to see him, but soon realizes that he has blood rage and that Andrew Hubbard turned him. As it turns out, Father Hubbard was made by Matthew's son, Benjamin. Jack tells him that Hubbard changed him because he was dying from the plague and that, unfortunately, Annie had died years earlier. Jack tells him that Benjamin found him a few years ago, and he promised to take Jack to see Matthew, but forced him to do and watch terrible things before he managed to escape. On the upside, he brought one of the missing pages of the Ashmole 782. Of course, that came with the news that Benjamin wants the Book of Life. Matthew, Galaglass, Chris, and Hubbard all agree they will help Jack control his blood rage. However, there is more bad news. Blood rage cannot be cured, and Baldwin shows up and finds Jack. Baldwin begins to drink from Jack to get his memories and realizes he has blood rage. Baldwin orders Matthew to kill Jack. Matthew shares this news with Diana, who begs him to create a scion and form his own family. He reluctantly agrees, but it means he has to go to New Orleans without Diana. Matthew tells Diana to go to Septor and search for the last missing page of Ashmole 782. Diana has her eyes set on the manuscript, Ashmole 782, though, and she heads to London. Meanwhile, Isabeau is being held prisoner by Joubert. Due to her good behavior, she has been afforded many privileges. She also managed to get him addicted to social media and preyed on his ego enough that when she announces she is leaving, he does not argue. She and Martha leave and meet up with Galaglass and Diana in London. To Diana's surprise, Phoebe is also there. Sarah and Fernando soon join them. They quickly get a lead on the last missing page of Ashmole 782. Thanks to Isabeau's connections, they find out a demon named TJ Weston purchased the page from an antique shop. They track him, and luckily enough, he is willing to give them the page. Now they need to get their hands on the Ashmole 782. When they go to the library, though, they find out the books have been moved. In New Orleans, Matthew's quest is going better than Diana's. He has convinced all of his grandchildren to join his scion and is finally able to return to Diana. 
Shortly after his return, Diana gives birth to the twins, a boy and a girl, who they name Philip and Rebecca. Since happiness can never last long for the group, a few hours after the twins are born, they are contacted by Baldwin, informing them that the congregation wants to examine the babies and then contacted by Benjamin, who threatens to kidnap Diana and her daughter. The holiday season comes and with some literal pressure from Matthew, Baldwin agrees to the Bishop de Claremont Sion. After the holidays, Diana goes back to Oxford to steal Ashmole 782 and Matthew goes searching for Benjamin. But since nothing ever goes right for our vampires and witches, Diana fails to find the Book of Life and Matthew gets kidnapped by Benjamin. What happens next? Do they eventually find the Book of Life? Is Matthew able to escape Benjamin's clutches? You'll have to read the book or listen to find out. This is your spoiler alert. We'll be talking about everything from here on out. So if you don't like spoilers, this is a place for you to stop. Or if you don't care, keep on listening. Okay. So Vicki, mm-hmm. how did you feel about this book? Oh God, it was so stressful, Marissa. I know it was really stressful. <laughs> <laughs> so stressful. I mean, we've read it before, yeah. but it was still stressful. You and wouldn't then- think it would be this stressful knowing exactly what's going to happen. Somehow that made it worse. I yeah it was hard and then like my heart broke for several of the characters like Gallo Glass and Jack yes it just it made me so sad too so on top of the stress from what's happening with Benjamin and everything we've got like heartbreak going on with Gallo Glass being Mm -hmm. in love with Diana and Jack being tortured and yeah just horrible things happening to Jack yes oh god yeah it was it was heavy afterwards I read one of those alien books to get over I also started an alien romance after I read this book because I needed some candy like it was just I still feel it like just the heaviness in my heart after reading these it was so good. This book is so, so good, but it is the tone of it does get quite heavy. This book starts with a character death. Emily is dead. Um, and, and Marcus feels bad about it. Do you think he's responsible for her death? Because he's carrying some of the weight of that. I don't think he is. Yeah. I wouldn't blame him. Mm-hmm. Uh, Matthew seems to blame him. Yeah. But I, I don't see, I mean, Emily was going off and like doing higher magics and stuff. Yeah. Like, she's her own person. What right. What is he going to do? And requested not to be, not to have people follow her. And so they were being respectful of her wishes, which I could see how that would irritate Matthew because he <laughs> struggles so much with letting Diana do anything by herself. So from his perspective, I could see how that would be like someone being at fault, but I mean, they, she, they were respecting her wishes. She was, mm-hmm. from what we understand, kind of capable of taking care of herself. So then they had no way to anticipate that they were going to be attacked by Peter Knox. So, right. And so Baldwin you- makes a good point at the end that if Marcus hadn't been there to keep things safe, they would have like, the vampires would have taken over Septor. Mm-hmm. Domenico was bragging about it to them so while Marcus wasn't able to save Emily his presence kept everybody else safe mm-hmm. do you think Emily's death was necessary oh that's a good question 
the well it ends up being necessary because that's why they return to madison to see if they can figure out what she was doing right mm -hmm. so to the plot that way yes i feel like they could have come about like could have been written another way though she didn't have to die right yeah what about you? you well i was just gonna say do you think that diana and sarah would have gotten where they were in their relationship if emily hadn't died no i don't think so because they really bonded um mm -hmm. when they're back in madison and sarah's trying they're working together to figure yeah. stuff out yeah, I think yeah. if Emily was there, that wouldn't have happened. So, yeah, she was necessary to the like her death was necessary to that like in that sense. It probably could have been done without her death, but right. I mean, yeah, she could have written it a million different ways, but I think right. I think Emily's death provides an opportunity for Sarah and Diana to make progress in their relationship that they wouldn't have been able to make otherwise. So while I hate Emily's death and I hate the grief that they experience because of it, I think it ends up being a useful plot point for progressing their story forward. Um, if you had a vampire lover, would you, and he, in this situation, if you were Phoebe, mm -hmm. would you um, want to be immortal and be a vampire too, to be with Marcus or just a vampire lover that you have? Yeah. Really? Go for it. Yes. Really? Caution to the wind. I'm going to embrace an immortal life. I'm going to drink blood. Going to be really old and look really young forever. Interesting that you say that. Yeah. Because you, you wouldn't want to be a vampire. If you didn't have a partner, you wouldn't want to be a vampire, right? Right. See, reading this, it sounds kind of exhausting to have a vampire mate right they cannot yeah. be away from each other mm -hmm. how how do you handle that that just yeah I don't see and that's why that would probably be I wouldn't want to be a lonely vampire uh, <laughs> so if I didn't have someone who was guaranteed to be my friend for the rest of my life I probably <laughs> would not choose to be made a vampire but in this situation I mean it's like that soulmate situation and so you're, I guess, not bothered by the fact that you'll be with someone forever. And maybe you can take little breaks from, from, because yeah, like, they Philippe don't, and... with the, yeah, Philippe and Isabeau, they took breaks from each other and then you can come back. And that's harder for like Matthew because he, he's got the blood rage, which makes being separated from his mate much worse. But we're presented this in a situation where it's like, they're so attached to each other that they wouldn't really want to be separated from the other person. So if I felt that type of affection for another person and the, the idea of them, it was possible for them to die and leave me alone, I would probably say, sure, let's do it. What about you? What would you do? I don't know. I'd, I'd probably agree. I'd have a lot of hesitations, but considering all my like issues about death, in general yeah. somebody offering to make me immortal i'd probably jump on that anyway avoid your fear of death by never dying <laughs> i think that's a good good Problem way to solved. avoid it it is yep. a good way to avoid it so we saw a lot of gallo glass oh i love gallo glass he's one of my favorite side characters i really hope we get a book for him yeah me too 
And okay, so he's in love with Diana, right? Yeah. So if you were, well, I would he I would pick him over Matthew. Would you? I was just about to ask. Do you think he's a better fit for Diana than Matthew was? For Diana, yeah, Matthew's better. Okay, but for me, for you, for me, Percy, yeah, <laughs> I think I would probably pick the fun-loving. Yeah, I don't really understand over she, the broody vampire. <laughs> I don't know how to understand what she sees in Matthew. Like he's so broody. I if I was Diana, right? But I was still like me personality wise. Yeah, I and Matthew's not somebody I would ever go for like that. Yeah, Galaglass though, I'd be like, yes, yeah, yes. love your tattoos, love your tattoos, <laughs> Galaglass every moment with him in this book I just adore he's he's sweet what did you think about so he didn't tell Matthew that there were issues with the twins mm-hmm. Diana and Fernando was like you better run yeah what did you think of that like what yeah what did you think we kind of get the impression that Galaglass is withholding that information because Matthew's not where he really should be with Diana and so it's almost like a, a punishment or out of, do you feel like he was doing it out of spite maybe? I don't think out of spite, but I think more he wanted to be with Diana. Okay. Like that. I don't think it was out of spite. Like I don't think it was anger or anything malicious really yeah. like that. I think it was more, he wanted time with her mm. and he wanted to be the one who was there. Yeah. To be able to support her. Yeah. yeah. I could see that. Which, uh, you know, is not a good thing. Anyway, right. he shouldn't have done that. That's manipulative. It is. But I don't think it was he, malicious sort of too Well, much. speaking of manipulative situations, do you feel like it was manipulative of Philippe to put Galaglass in that situation where he was basically made Diana's guard for the last however long I mean, basically realizing that she, he was going to fall in love with her and having him be in that position. The, so they bring it up, I think, later in the book about who better than to protect her. Yeah. So I see why Philippe would do it, but it, it was mean. I don't want to say mean. But like you said, sort of manipulative. Mm-hmm. Just it wasn't a nice thing to do. Right. It's a gallo glass, you know? Yeah. And when he did that whole, um, there was a section where he was saying, when they're on the plane, he was like, I was hoping like you'd come back from the past different. Everybody was talking about how you might be different when you came back, that maybe mm-hmm. you'd come back and the fates would have switched or something. And I was like, oh, gallo glass. I know it's so sad you know he reveals Diana accidentally uncovers like the tattoo that he has of her it's like a siren on his arm and Diane it's Diana's face and it's just a really sad moment when we discover that he's he loves Diana and has been in love with her I think it's really it's it's hard to read we see a lot more of Philippe's behind the scenes type of like machinations in this story. And it's amazing the way that he was able to put all of this stuff into action centuries ago. 
Right. Like making sure that um, Diana would be accepted as a Claremont. Yes. That he was able to make plans and foresee situations, how they would play out Mm -hmm. centuries before they happened. But we also do, and Fernando speaks to this a little bit because he feels like he was never accepted by the Declaremonts because he, he was Hugh's mate and lover. It's not, Philippe is always portrayed in this sort of like heroic and valiant and uh, honored, highly honored patriarchal figure. And we see kind of some situations in this book where it's like, oh, well, that that was actually kind of not great for all parties involved. <laughs> like him being like making him making Matthew the family's assassin, knowing that it would just because of his faith and the type of person he is, that it would weigh so heavily on his spirit and his heart. And he would carry that grief around forever. I agree. That was, yeah. I think his thought process was that with that was, oh, he has blood rage. Mm -hmm. So it might be easier for him to do this, but ignored sort of that it would, the emotional impact that it would have on him. Right. You know? Yeah. So he's really making use of people's talents, but not considering what it's going to do to them. Right. You know, which on one level, okay, that's kind of great. You know, you're doing the best thing to achieve your goal or goals, mm-hmm. but also sucks for the people who yeah. like, sucks for your family, you know? Yeah. That are being manipulated like that. Because Matthew is very sensitive. Yeah. They talk about how he's pl- prone to like depression and blood rages and he would run off when he felt guilty. I mean, there's obviously all of these signs that he's not handling situations like that very well and i know that being ruthless and killing people is part of the vampiric way of life but for that for you to be the family assassin the person who gets to do the most murdering yeesh yep that weighs heavily on his conscience which is already so burdened oh matthew well later on when he visits one of his grandchildren and they say, I'll join you if you can name all of the people like that you've killed. Mm-hmm. And it takes them five hours to go through it all. But mm-hmm. it wasn't like everybody that he's killed. It was everybody that was like all of his grandchildren, I think. It was everybody that he killed in New Orleans that was part of Marcus's family. And How did Marcus them make that in. many children? I mean, there's a lot of people in New Orleans. He's just changing up i don't know you go to a bar or a or a a brothel maybe i don't know and you meet people you like and you say hey have you heard the good news (laughs) you can have everlasting life as a vampire (laughs) it's that seems like a lot of pe- for five hours. That's a lot of people to have killed. Which means Marcus had created a lot of. Well, I guess it's Marcus's children, and then Marcus's children's yeah, yeah, children yeah. as well. Uh, so we learn. I feel like we learn more about blood rage in this. And oh, definitely. 
when Matthew is talking to Fernando about how his blood rage is getting worse now that he's made it to her because if she wants to resume her normal life and be away from him and be employed, you know, Mm -hmm. it's going to be worse and harder for him. I understand now more why he didn't want to mate with her, you know, because that's going to be really, that would be really hard for him and hard for her and just difficult for everyone, especially then if she has kids. Mm-hmm. Well, obviously she did have kids. Um, yeah, just, so I understand more now because his reasoning kind of before was given, oh, being a va- or being mated to a vampire is difficult sort of thing and didn't 100% address how severe the blood rage might be. Right. And now knowing that, it's, it makes yeah. sense. It just makes more sense. Yeah, it does. It gives context to the situation. Mm-hmm. That letter to Philippe. Ah, or a letter cried. from Philippe. Yes. I cried. It was... I, oh, gosh. I didn't cry. I cried the first time I read it, but I came really close to crying the second time as well. But yeah, oh my gosh, that letter from him. Thank you. He can let go now. And oh. Yes. Oh gosh. Yeah. I highlighted it. Like I was crying. Mm-hmm. Do not let the ghosts of the past steal the joy from the future. Thank you for holding my hand. Oh. And then we find out as well, he was talking to Diana in like his last couple of days, like he would send everybody out of the room uh-huh. and talk to Diana. I was like, oh God. Oh. Okay. Um, we have some fun, some fun moments here with diana and matthew and him not understanding how parenting works (laughs) that's right so diana thinks he'd simply assumed i would somehow juggle teaching and child care with no trouble at all typical yeah i love that i i definitely think that deborah harkness uh shares some of our snark about (laughs) about men there were a couple other things that I highlighted um for it and I put in yeah document as well the comment about the uterus yes um, it was, do you think the uterus has suddenly wandered off to a new location and I just yeah. love that because men did think that mm-hmm. like wandering uterus was a thing yes and then female hysteria yep female hysteria and then women shouldn't on trains because our uteruses will fly out really you didn't know that yeah i didn't know that yeah originally like women weren't supposed to be on trains because men were men and doctors were scared that when the train stopped for whatever reason their uteruses would fly out (laughs) here's another one that i Highlighted, in labor, we blame absolutely everything on the husband. It reminds the men that they aren't the center of attention. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. What did you think about her fingers becoming the ribbons? That was one of my favorite descriptive scenes in this book. Mm -hmm. It was so magical. I like how her threads were integrated into her skin the description of it was gorgeous also it seems really practical because I've been wondering like up to this point in the book it's like well okay 
Are you going to carry these cords around with you all the time? There's another scene with the cords where it's like they, they weave themselves into her hair. Mm. Uh, just the imagery of having a cords around and like, if you don't have pockets, you, we know that women's clothing is not good for pockets. So where are you keeping your cords? What is the, the practical implications of having cords on your person at all times I struggled with. And so I liked the way that the magic was woven into her body. It just became a part of her structure. And it, it's nicely related back to her mother because Sarah describes a, a similar situation with Rebecca. What did you think about that, that scene? I, I loved it. And it, it, again, there's something about her ribbon imagery in general that I really mm -hmm. liked because in um, A Discovery of Witches, right, when she's imagining having these ribbons wrapped around her, that's mm -hmm. one of my favorite descriptive scenes in the whole series Yeah, too. So something about that, it just really kind of pops and mm -hmm. stands out to me. Um, it's, I'm trying to think of how kind of strange it would be to have all of a sudden have like tattoos on your fingers, you know, mm -hmm. like that. Plus, then she becomes the book of life later on too. Yeah. She got, Diana's got a lot going on. <laughs> yeah. She, she just has a lot on her plate. And how inconvenient would the book of life on your skin be? Like anytime you asked a question, your query, it would be like a search query. Mm -hmm. rolling across your skin the answers listed across your face like wikipedia yeah <laughs> you have a note about the crossroads scene yes so this is one of my favorite scenes in the book for several reasons right because they're arguing though and then they stop because they can feel the babies moving right mm -hmm. which just was like sort it's sort of magical but natural magic you know mm -hmm. what I mean like the magic of life yeah <laughs> kind of thing and they got so distracted by that that they're like okay we'll stop fighting like this is what's important um so that's one of the reasons I like it but also um they talk about um how they each have darkness in them mm -hmm. and so Diana is kind of feeling overwhelmed with all of a sudden these newish feelings that she's having she's drawn sort of now to darker things um you know she knows her mother worked with higher magics and stuff like that and so she's kind of nervous and scared and Matthew's like I saw it in you I still love you and you see the darkness in me it's part of us so it was a really sweet moment especially because then he reminds her about how in the 16th century he's like you chose life so many times for jack for annie and for all these people um and it was a really sweet moment it relates mm -hmm. and it relates back to so many other points with like him being an assassin right mm -hmm. and how he was choosing i mean it wasn't totally his choice because it was philippe so it brought us back to philippe as well yeah. him being an assassin brings him back to philippe him being this like harbinger of death sort of thing was the assassin that philippe put him in that situation so there's just so much happened in that scene. I felt like, you know, yeah. so many things kind of all came together at that moment. Mm -hmm. Crossroads. Yes. <laughs> so she pulls us back to the crossroads theme quite a bit in this series. And I really like Deborah Harkness has a good way of connecting things that we've mentioned 
and this book with things that we ran into in the previous book. So like the situations with Crossroads, we've run into that several times. Like you mentioned with ribbons, we've run into that many times connecting with the absence and desire, fear of blood. We've run back to that so many times. And I like that she has been able to weave those elements into the story across books without it feeling forced and without it's not like oh yeah obviously we're making this connection it's like we're able to say okay where have we run into this before it feels like it happens organically and I appreciate that because it makes you think a little bit more about what's happening in the story it makes you make those connections yourself instead of just being spoon-fed ideas exactly there's a lot of depth to it yep i agree another example of how amazing her writing is right she's just a brilliant writer Uh, your point about light and dark that that reminded me of a scene that happens a little bit later with Chris so it's um where am I yeah Chris speaks about his Native American grandmother um and he talks a little bit about how we we all have two wolves living within us one evil and another one that's good and they spend their time trying to destroy each other so it's this idea that we all everyone No one is 100% good or 100% bad. We all have both sides of that within us. And he relates it to one wolf, the wolf that you wins that's fighting within you is the one that you feed. So the evil wolf wolf will feed on anger and guilt and sorrow and lies and regret. And the good one feeds on love and honesty and spoonfuls of compassion and faith. And so if you want the good one to win, you have to starve the other. And I think that's a good analogy for that light and that dark that we've seen up to this point. Again, it's one of those points that it's not a huge section, right? How, like he says that in a paragraph or two, right? Mm -hmm. But there's so much more depth to it than just that quote you know and just that situation that he's in because that has to deal with jack and he's talking yeah he's talking to jack about it yeah and And i I think it's be yeah oh sorry go ahead no you can go so they talk about they talk about it in relation to jack and especially with like dealing with the blood rage and I think for Jack, that's particularly meaningful because he has experienced so much trauma and his blood rage, unfortunately, is triggered by more than just like anger or protective instincts. It's like extreme joy just being surprised by something. But we see a lot of characters in this book who've got that that element where they could they could choose to feed into the darkness and may or to the, the bad wolf. Uh, and maybe they have before. And there's the threat of that happening again, but it's choosing to feed the good wolf. Um, so speaking of Chris, I completely forgot he was a character in this book. <laughs> he like shows up and it's like, Chris, and I'm like, who the, who is Chris? <laughs> completely forgot about it. <laughs> it's like, oh no. And then yes. she's like, oh, it's my best friend. And I was like, what? Uh, uh, oh <laughs> that one <laughs> <laughs> okay 
completely forgot. But he ended up, he was great for, I don't, I don't know what the second half of the book was he even in that much of the book. I, I don't know exactly when he showed up in the book, but he was great. Mm-hmm. Um, he has some good comic relief, you know, yeah. he's some good, um, in the book. And then his interactions with Miriam. Mm-hmm. And with Matthew. Yeah, and with Matthew. I love that um, he punches Matthew. Mm-hmm. And Matthew's like, I let you get one in. But just like, so their first interactions with them. So also he curses around Diana. Mm-hmm. And Matthew doesn't like this. So he goes from like pushing um, Chris against the wall and threatening him about like not cursing in front of Diana to then going to Diana and being really sweet and be like, watch the stairs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like Matthew and your mood swings. Yes. That, that made me laugh. Yeah. How did you feel about the return of Jack and, and Father Hubbard? I was so, so I was happy to see Jack back. Mm-hmm. You know, I wondered what happened, you know, Jack and Annie. Um, so I was happy that he was there, but then you find out he's been through all of these horrible things. Mm-hmm. He has blood rage, Bald or not Baldwin, Benjamin just put him through so much. You know, he killed his children. He watched mm-hmm. the horrible things happen to his daughters. Like, um, and it was all under the guise of, oh, well, Matthew will accept you if you do these things. Yeah. Sort of. And ugh, that like broke my heart. Yes. So, so happy to see him back, but so sad uh, how much he had to go through. Yeah. And how severely it's affected him. That scene where he's in, I mean, it's kind of like a fugue state where he's just drawing on any surface that he can and is basically unreachable. And through his drawings, he's, and this has happened before. We're, we're led to believe multiple times, but through his drawings, we're able to see all of the trauma that he experienced and not, not all of it, n- not just trauma in his drawings, but a lot of, a lot of trauma from childhood to where he is now. It's just oh, heartbreaking. It's so sad. We find out that after Diana and Matthew left and came back to the future, Jack went to the harbor every day for years and years to see if anyone had heard anything about them, if anyone had seen them, to try to find more information about them. And that tore me apart. Do you think Matthew and Diana should have handled their separation from him differently? Should they have told him what they were and what was happening or found a different way to part from him I think he would have been heartbroken no matter how they left Mm -hmm. but they should have told him they wouldn't be coming back because that he was constantly searching for him I mean for what like over like 12 years or something yeah right searching for them just talk uh reading that hurt me too Mm-hmm. Um, just everything that happened with Jack, just so sad. Um, I think it's it was really difficult. I think for them to know where to draw that line. You know, he was seven years yeah. old. What do you tell them? He'll feed. They they were his parent figures. You know, I was like, oh, mm-hmm. we're leaving. We're not coming back. That's you know, massive yeah. rejection um, to a seven year old. 
I feel like they could have made arrangements when he reached a certain age to sort of explain maybe what the, because explaining vampirism maybe to a seven-year-old is probably not going to settle in super clearly. Mm-hmm. But maybe they could have made arrangements with Father Hubbard at some point to explain what had happened. Obviously, it had to happen the way that it did because of the way that the plot turns out. But it just, it's so this scene in particular is so hurtful. I think that's probably one of the like, toughest scenes to read, like mm-hmm. sections, just his return and that, I guess, chapter where you hear everything. And it's probably one of the toughest parts of the book. For yeah. Me. So. Definitely. But I love how accepting they all were of him. I mean, it was like no time had passed. He was Matthew's mom, or he was Matt, not Matt, uh, Diana's son again. You know, it's like they see him and she's automatically like, okay, let's do this. Take on that parenting role. And even Matthew is that way too. He uses that to help with guiding him through some of the blood rage. So I love how they just, there was the separation. They didn't realize that they were going to get Jack back, but now they have. And there's like no lag time between seeing him and taking on that role again yep. and even like with gala glass and and chris they, you know they they all just sort of formed this lovely bond it must have been such a relief to have all of those people back him up though you know mm-hmm. after he finished um the drawing and he said he'd paint over it um and they have the conversation then and they're like, the five of us in this room or the four of us, we're not like together. We'll be able to get you through this. Mm-hmm. We'll help. And his reaction just being like all of us. Yeah. That must have been just such a relief. You made a note about Isabeau's alarms. Yes. I thought this was an interesting contrast to Matthew and to some of the other vampires. So she sets alarms for like, all of these major events on her phones or phone um, just from negative experiences to positive ones. And they go off like it's mm-hmm. down to the minute, you know, every day they go off. And I just thought that was such an interesting thing. So she wants to recall these things, good and bad. These are momentous mm-hmm. occasions in her life that and she's had such a long life. You know, she's older than Matthew. I don't, do they ever say how old she is? Mm-mm. Okay, well, she's older than 1,500 years, right? Yeah. So that's a long time, and she wants to hold on to these memories and these moments in her life, whereas Matthew kind of wants to forget them, you know, Mm -hmm. in terms of, like, Eleanor, you know what he said, what does it matter when it happens, or even when he was still human. Mm -hmm. He pushes these things off and tries down, like, deep down to forget them, Um, whereas Isabeau is just more accepting of it it was an interesting contrast to me yeah i think it's funny when isa beau is staying at jubert's house she has she gets him like set up with the internet and introduces him to social media and has nathaniel monitor his internet usage can you imagine what his search history is like oh my god i bet it's porn it's always <laughs> I bet porn. It's, it's like <laughs> It is definitely poor. 
she makes a comment about how the things that he clicks on, he keeps getting computer viruses. <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> she says you can learn a surprising amount of information about a person by browsing through their shopping history. Oh. I can't imagine what, <laughs> what he's <I> buying. <laughs> I bet his Facebook page is like him accidentally sharing, you know, uh, porn sites or <laughs> treating it like a search engine, like mm-hmm. teenage, like, I don't know, barely legal. And yes. Mark, and that's his status. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or it's like, he's the guy that clicks on the ads on the sides of Facebook and definitely gets a computer. He ends up with like this random thing and a computer virus or someone has tried to steal his identity. Yeah. I I love that she's just like able to walk out. She's like, okay, I'm leaving now. I'm leaving. I'm done with this. Bye. Mm -hmm. He's like, do you need an escort? And she's like, no, I'm fine. I got this. Like she was not ever being held hostage there. If she hadn't wanted to be there, she could have left. What do you think about the quote? If you truly love someone, you will cherish what they despise most about themselves. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on that? I feel conflicted about that statement. Share what you feel. I also feel conflicted because cherish, I feel like is a very strong word Mm -hmm. for some I guess weaknesses that maybe a partner may have. Yeah. So I think maybe accept would be better or I, it's one of those things where it's like, you don't want to make them feel bad about it. Mm-hmm. Right. But you don't want to be like, I love that you were an assassin. And yeah. <laughs> you know, like so hot. Yeah. Tell me about the murders. Right. So it's one of those things where I think it's more like, like you comfort them being like I recognize this is about you right that this is something that you are Mm -hmm. I love you I know this is part of you and I still love you this doesn't change my love for you that which is different than I to cherish those parts that they Mm -hmm. hate of themselves I feel like that's it's just different does that make sense yes it does make sense okay it's kind of like just being a supportive partner holding space not necessarily embrace like yeah let's let's embrace this murdery past that you had mm-hmm. but acknowledging that it happened and you can't change anything about the fact that it has happened you can hold space and support them and you can help them cope when when they are having those moments of self-loathing and you can be a supportive partner when they are feeling bad about the parts of themselves that they despise there are some really really sweet things that Matthew said in this book that I um, highlighted so one thing he says is I may be the head of the Bishop Claremont family but you are its heart and the three of us are in perfect agreement that the heart is more important it's like oh because he was talking to Diana and the three of us were the two or the yeah kids, the twins or yeah. the twins and that was really sweet it was so sweet and then yes thank you I will (laughs) (laughs) the next one was um, before you I was nothing but dust and shadows you brought me to life and I cannot survive without you like stop I know (laughs) I 
highlighted it in my Kindle. Did you? Oh, it got me right in the heart. It really, really did. It's just like Matthew. Matthew says some of the sweetest things. I think I probably highlighted half of the things that he says to Diana. Mm-hmm. That's one of my favorite quotes, I think, that I shared was something that he says to her like they they just have such sweet moments and he says to her i see you even when you hide from the rest of the world i hear you even when you're silent i know he's a butthead but his relationship with diana and their interactions with each other are really touching and i feel like they are just very well matched for each other I agree. He says, so after he's been taken by Benjamin and tortured, and he returns and he is in the healing process, which is so brutal. That was really hard to read as well. But when his his hands are finally able to work again, Diana feels him like running his fingers down her back. And he says, I needed the first thing that I touched to be your skin or something like that. I needed the first thing that I touched to be you. Oh, they just have such great chemistry. Their, their moments of intimacy are so touching and well written and deep. I love their interactions with each other. It's good. It's good romance. It is. And it's romance with that. So there is like tension and stuff and there is sexy times, I guess. But there's, it's so much like emotional romance with this too, which we don't always, always get with books. Like this is right. Even ones that are like romantic. um, We don't quite get this. I feel like. You know, it's like, okay, they're romantic. They love each other on all these levels. But this is so strong. And I think part of it is Matthew feels so much. Yeah. You know, like all these quotes that we're giving, they're from Matthew, Mm -hmm. right? He's the one saying all these. And I think he just feels so much. um, And that's why. Yeah. It was very powerful. Mm -hmm. His, His love, his affection for Diana is palpable. It really comes through in the story. Mm -hmm. these are like the mr darcy moments right yes so the anticipation building up to the scene where matthew gets kidnapped he springs the trap first of all after watching the queen's gambit did you watch the queen's gambit i did so after watching the queen's gambit and then reading the queen's gambit the queen that reading the queen's gambit in the storyline matthew using that is like basically tricking Benjamin into capturing him or whatever. I was like, I still don't know anything about chess, (laughs) but I've heard of this before. (laughs) I know. That's what I thought too. And I was like, Oh, I know that. I know that's a thing. These words make sense now. I still don't know what it means, but I've heard of it. (laughs) I watched a show about this. The words mean nothing, but (laughs) I recognize it. Yes. I have more context to it. Yes context yeah (laughs) but the symbolism of it was was good 
it, you know, they talk about, and this has been a theme that we pulled back from the other books, Matthew's primary strategy has always been to protect the queen, the queen, protect the queen. And in this situation, he's letting the queen, he's taking some of that protection off. He's letting the queen work for her, protect herself. I get, I don't know. I don't know the chess context, but I know that he gives the opportunity for Diana to get involved. And it's not just about keeping her safe and separated from everybody else. And so I feel like symbolically for their relationship, this is a huge step from where he was at the start of the story to where they are now, recognizing Diana's power and her ability to contribute and to help. Right. We saw that when we go back to the first book, Mm -hmm. um, we saw that a little bit towards the end with him accepting that... um, after she saves his life um, as well, him mm-hmm. being a little bit more respectful of that or realizing she has her own. Yeah. But this oh. is a like a, in terms of like the, the story has been building up to this point, this is mm-hmm. like our major climax. And it's, this situation is a lot more dangerous from the ones that she's been in before. So yeah, definitely. I completely agree. Yeah. I, I just like reminded that. me of that of that yeah definitely and i like that in this part of the story so towards the end diana is able to recognize that her fear is still holding her back from truly accepting her magic we see such growth for her and it's so it's so powerful she goes from the beginning of the series where she's fearful of her magic, never wants to use it, isn't acknowledging that she is actually using it. It wants nothing to do with it to now the end where it's like, okay, if I don't accept this, my husband is going to die. Like she embraces it fully, throws caution to the wind, releases her fire drake in the library, which is an epic moment because the books and it's fantastic. You can feel the power. You can feel how strong she is. Yeah. Oh. And at that moment towards the end, like just all of that, you know, her being powerful, it was awesome. It was yeah. great to see her finally really embrace and really shed off those like shackles, you know, yes. that she put on herself. Yes. The yeah. self-imposed shackles. Mm-hmm. you know we we get out we release the shackles like the literal spell binding from her parents and now her own self-imposed ribbons um, they're gone and she's the diana that she was meant to become the- so benjamin's awful i hate him but he's crazy and i love just like insane villains like they're horrible but they're fun <laughs> you know (laughs) like who okay so we've got i mean the joker is an obvious one and then there's um kimberly from full metal alchemist which Mm -hmm. you know you don't really know um who else is just like these just crazy i really love the darkling he's not like crazy Mm -hmm. crazy like that but so i i am a fan of just villains who don't really necessarily have a purpose. They just kind of want to like burn everything down. Yeah. So Benjamin doesn't really hit that mark for me. He's all like vengeance and stuff. Yeah. But 
you the like crazy villains yeah the ones who just want to see chaos i i love right. them um so there what about you i like the deceptive villains i, I got like the ones that it's not their villainy is not immediately obvious so mm-hmm. like the darkling he starts out being he, he's presented as one of the good guys initially but like Maeve like her being a, the villainous character was one of the most shocking unveilings I've ever read before and she was really like oh like devious in a secretive way and I liked that and then like in Doctor Who we have the the silence and the weeping angels and their their villainy isn't it's deceptive i think that's it for our list we've got some quotes <laughs> we quoted a whole, i quoted a whole bunch like in our main discussion i know <laughs> it's because you could quote ha- like half of this book i highlighted i, I know i <laughs> there was yeah there was a bunch i highlighted and then a bunch that I didn't even put into, you know, our document. So for um, one, there were two funny ones. I picked out two funny ones because the other ones I had were quite heavy, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, this is said by Gala Glass. This family was more fun when we had fewer medical degrees. <laughs> I thought that was great because, I mean, I think it was about smoking. Everyone was like, no, don't smoke. It's bad for you. Yes. Yeah. He's like, we're vampires. I'm not going to die. <laughs> uh-huh. um, and then Matthew says, it's very fatiguing pretending you're in charge when your wife actually rules the roost. Mm-hmm. I really liked that because he was saying that because um, Philippe was always like tired or exhausted or something. Mm-hmm. He was like, oh, this this must be why. Yeah. One of my favorite quotes, I've already shared one of the other ones, but one of my favorite quotes is what Diana says to Satu when she confronts her after the congregation meeting. And Satu essentially threatens Diana's children. And Diana says, don't ever threaten my children again. If you do, you'll be begging me to throw you down a hole and forget about you. Oh, mm, that fierce mama energy. I love it. And I love when she spellbinds Satu right after this. I was mm. going to say we didn't talk about the spellbinding of Satu. Oh my That's gosh. It was such a great moment. Yes, it was very like cathartic. Definitely. Like. Mm, do you have any final thoughts? This was such a fantastic series. Mm-hmm. I mean, the character development, the writing, it was beautiful, really. Um yeah so great everyone should read this i just yeah. such a love i i mean a lovely isn't quite the word because so much of it is there's some darkness in it mm-hmm. but really it's, it's so amazing yeah i agree mm-hmm. so good this was i mean i would read it again probably not soon because it is emotionally a little tired like I was emotionally tired after reading this. It's a little draining, but it's so good. And it's one of those series where every time you read it, you catch something new. So I would read it again. And I would recommend it to 
at, like I recommended it to one of my uh, yoga participants. And so we've been talking about it as like, it's just, it's so good. So that's it. That's all for the All Souls Trilogy. You can join us next week. We'll be covering The Traitor Queen by Danielle Jensen. This is the second book in her series. We spoke about the first book as part of our fantasy romance February coverage. So the first book was called The Bridge Kingdom. And this is the second part. And, oh, this book is so fantastic. Maybe even better than the first one. Like, it was that great. So... We'll be talking about that next week, and we hope you join us for that. Thank you for listening to Literary Quest. We hope you enjoyed our episode. If you'd like to follow us on social media, we can be found at Literary Quest Podcast on Instagram or Facebook. You're also welcome to share your thoughts and ideas with us via email at literaryquestpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again.